seat. If you're here for the first time with us, we're really glad that you're here with us. You actually chose a uh, really good Sunday to come and join us for several reasons, but we have barbecue after church today just for you. Uh, So you guys, we're excited to to have a meal with you. If you guys can actually uh, just kind of squeeze in a little bit to provide room on the outside of the aisles, uh, that would be really helpful uh, for those coming in to find seats. But one of the things, but yeah, praise the Lord. Yeah, praise the Lord. Yeah, we, uh, we love our college students. Family weekend, we are here and ready for you guys. So um, tonight, uh, today we're in Joshua chapter 9. Um, we're looking at the Gibeonite deception. And as we've gone through the book of Joshua, y'all, it has been victory after victory until last week in chapter 7. Uh, we saw uh, Israel's first defeat that came because of a man named Achan. Uh, he took and hid gold and silver that God very clearly told his people not to take. Um, and just as a reminder, y'all, the whole book of Joshua that we've been kind of going through um, is God keeping his promise to give his people this land that he promised to give them back in the book of Genesis. But what was essential was their obedience. And as we saw last week, Achan's disobedience, a guy in, in Joshua uh, 7 and 8, he, he took the spoils and it resulted in defeat in, in, in Israel. But then as we saw, God dealt with Achan and God's people saw redemption in chapter 8 and they won the battle of Ai. That's what we saw last week. And 30,000 uh, of Israel's soldiers defeated 12,000 soldiers in Ai and not a single person in Israel's army lost their life. It was a picture of God's favor and redemption for God's people, Uh, but what we began to see last week, and we'll see more of this week, is that there is opposition to God's plans. Like, God promised he would give them this land, and God is keeping that promise, but y'all, it doesn't come without pushback. And I think we naturally understand this because, you know, every good story has both a protagonist and an antagonist. Like, it has a hero and a villain, like Luke Skywalker has the Darth Vader, right? Batman has the Joker. Dorothy has the Wicked Witch of the West. Harry Potter has a Voldemort. You know, my personal favorite uh, Halloween costume for me and my wife, uh, Prince Eric and Ariel, uh, they have an Ursula. Me and my wife, you know, we've never actually had an Ursula on, things, on Halloween, so uh, maybe this year we're thinking our cat could be our Ursula. That would sound about right. But I say this because I think we understand the concept of good versus evil of the hero and the villain. And throughout the Bible, we see God as the hero and protagonist and Satan as the villain and antagonist. And so in, the book, uh, in a book like Joshua, where we, uh, where we see God come in and promise to give them this land to his people that has historically uh, been, like, had people that have been opposed to God, it should not surprise us that there will be some pushback with God's enemy, trying to stop what God is doing. And no, it does not, uh, we don't overtly see, like he doesn't say anything about God's enemy in the book of Joshua, but as we know from the very beginning of the Bible, he is very much behind the curtain doing what he does best. Like, and as Satan has been doing from the very beginning of time, like we know that his tactics are often very subtle and unassuming. Like Disney's villains are often not so subtle and pretty easy to spot. And we think of Satan, we often think of him kind of dressed in red uh, with fire coming out behind him with kind of a pitchfork in his hand. But that is not the way that Satan works. Again, he's often far more subtle and alluring. And so how, I mean, how did Satan uh, deceive Achan in chapter 7 that we saw last week kind of behind the scenes? He allured him with riches. And what did it do? It hindered God's plan but only for a moment. 
And as we'll see this week, the forces of darkness will continue to push back against what God is doing, but this week we'll see it done through more subtle deception. And although we'll see a tragic deception, I don't want us to miss that we also see a beautiful picture of God's miraculous grace. Leading us to our main idea for today, God can turn tragedy into triumph. Now, I don't know how you came in today. Maybe you come in uh, overcome by defeat or deception or some sort of hardship. I I pray that today you will find a hope in some capacity, knowing that God can take the hardest of things, the biggest mistakes in our life, and then turn it for his good. From the beginning of time, God has been taking messes and making them masterpieces. God takes those tragic, hard things in our life when it seems like the enemy has won the battle. He takes them and he drowns them in his grace and kindness and makes it a glorious triumph. And today we're going to walk through this story just like we've been doing over the past several weeks. And we'll see two key points, very similar to last week. Number one, the tragedy of deception. And number two, the glory of grace. It's a bad news, good news kind of week, okay? And what I want to point out, yes, that most of our story, it will fall under this first point, the tragedy of deception, because the entire story is mostly about this Gibeonite deception. But I do want you to hang with me until the end, because the glory of God's grace, it is coming. And so if you remember, God called Joshua back in chapter 1, and they all miraculously crossed the Jordan River. And back in chapter 5, their opponents, they were terrified, because they heard what God did at the Jordan River. And at the beginning of chapter 5, it said that they had no spirit in them. Like their opponents, they were terrified. They were donezo. They were toast. They knew they had no chance. And God's people walked around the, the walls of Jericho. The walls miraculously fell down. And then as we saw last week, we saw Israel get defeated for the first time in chapter 7. But then they redeemed themselves and their 30,000 people defeated Ai's 12,000 people. But this last time, after that last defeat, it's a little different. You know, their opponents, this time, they're not so terrified because this time they're not hiding in the walls knowing they have no chance. Look what it says at the beginning of chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So this time, their opponents were not terrified. No, they thought, maybe if we team up, we can stand our ground. Thinking they had 30,000 people against their 12,000 at Ai, and Ai did defeat Israel the first time, defeating 36 of their people, leading them to think that just maybe this time we can stand our ground. And as we continue to think about this idea of kind of good and evil, we should not be surprised by this, that a small defeat... Seeing an area of weakness gave the opposing enemies just a small piece of hope. Where before they thought Israel was indestructible. indestructible. But now, just maybe, thinking if we all stick together and we multiply our forces, maybe we can bring Israel down. And this is more of a side note for today before we kind of get into our main idea. But as we think about how our enemy works in our life today, this is just a warning for us. Because this same thing is true. Like when we give the enemy an inch of hope... To lead us away from God's plan, he'll see it, and then he will multiply his efforts to draw us away from the Lord. Like, this is a really hard truth, but it's true. And it's that the enemy attacks the strongest in our weakness. Like, he'll find a weakness, and then he'll attack it. Which for us is just a simple reminder to continually be aware of the ease to drift and to be vigilant against even the smallest of struggles. You know, maybe there's a seemingly small thing in your marriage. 
or maybe with your spending habits or thought life or maybe some sort of bad habit that's been formed. See this as a reminder to work on these things, like just hard, like work on them when they're small problems and not major problems. Now this is a great thing to do in our groups. And as we'll see in the weeks ahead, no matter where you are in your battle, whatever it is, whether big or small, we'll continue to see that nothing is too big for the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because as we'll see in the chapters to come, all these small armies, they gather together as two different unified forces against Israel. And I hate to tell you the end of the story, but let's just say it doesn't end well, okay? And get this, yes, this, this is the bad news. Like, is that our enemy attacks the strongest in our weakness. And I want to make sure before we move on that we're not left in despair here. Because guess what? The good news is that in our weakness is also when God's power is perfected in us. And so, yes, the enemy attacks the strongest in our weakness, but guess what? When we go to the Lord in our weakness and, not, and try not to do anything on our own strength, God takes our weaknesses and displays his power. And so, y'all, listen, as followers of Jesus, we don't see our weaknesses as liabilities to manage, but as opportunities for God to just show off. But that's in the weeks to come. Okay, that one was free for today. But let's look at verse 3 to see more of our main idea, seeing how one group of people did something a little different than all those that joined together. Look at verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they and all their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. So all of these other opponents, they all banded together to find strength in numbers, but not the Gibeonites. Like, they, they decided to work smarter, not harder. And what did these great warriors do? <laughs> they took all of their stuff, and they made it look worn out. Like they, they, it's like they had torn uh, clothes and suitcases and worn out sandals and, uh, like, all sorts of, like, t- dirty things. It says all their provisions were dry and crumbly. Like, let's just say they were not dressed to impress here. Like, fresh would not have been the word that we would use here to describe them. Now, as my wife uh, says about me after several hours of yard work, they were looking kind of raggedy. When, you know, I was in, when I was in college, I hacked the Appalachian Trail after six days in the woods. Let's just say I did not smell like roses, okay? And that's, that's kind of what they're trying to portray here to Israel. Like, they had been traveling for a long time, and they were looking kind of raggedy. It says in verse 4 that they on their part acted with cunning. They were being clever. But what were they really doing? They were being deceitful. Leading us to number one, the tragedy of deceit. And this is going to be a longer point, so just hang with me. We're going to spend about 15 to 20 minutes here walking through this entire story. Just continue to walk through it. But as we do this, we're going to see more of how our enemy works. Kind of pointing out a few things about our enemy in this point. So again, we're beginning to see deceitfulness play out. But as it says on their part, they were being cunning they were being clever you know i think we could uh, say similar to how the serpent was in the garden in genesis 3 the devil in the garden we see, was seen as crafty kind of the same idea as cunning and clever and in verse 4 they tell them as they look worn out that they come from a faraway land and what this tells us is that these clever and cunning people much like the serpent in the garden they knew god's word like the Gibeonites knew what the Mosaic law said in Deut- back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 to 15. Giving an exception for those in faraway lands from outside the promised land, like that they could be drawn in and given an exception and a promise of peace. 
But yet that promise of peace in Deuteronomy 20 was not for those in the land God promised to give them, which is where the Gibeonites lived. And so they tried to look like they came from a faraway land. And so what were they doing here? They did what Satan did with Adam and Eve in the garden. The Gibeonites used God's word against them and deceived them. And we see this idea all over the Bible. The enemy deceives by twisting God's words. Just because someone quotes a Bible verse or seems to know the Bible does not mean that we should trust them. Like, it is incredibly easy to take a Bible verse, twist it, and to use it totally out of context. And y'all, the enemy has been doing this since the beginning of time and is still doing it today. Which is why we teach the word and encourage you to read it and study it and know it here. Like, everything I, I say... I encourage you to go and check it for yourself with God's word. Like, my job is not to get you to trust me, but to show you what the word says. And so that's what the Gibeonites were doing. They they knew God's word, and they knew they they would lose this land. And so they, they thought that they found a loophole, and they acted like they were coming from a faraway land. They were being deceitful. Look what it says next in verse 7. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? So essentially kind of what we're reading here is that the men of Israel, like they're smelling something kind of fishy because they address them as Hivites, who they knew are their enemies and they're on the bad list. And they say, perhaps like you live among us, like we're thinking maybe we shouldn't be making a covenant with you, like their suspicious antennas are up. They're not quite sure if they should believe them. And look what it says next in verses 8 through 11. They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? Where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. So the men of Israel, they had their suspicious antennas up, but the Gibeonites, they identified themselves as their servants. And they continued to impress them with what they knew about God. Saying, we heard all that your God did in Egypt with all, those, uh, with all these other kings. Like they were speaking flattery to them. Saying, uh, those over us, like th- these elders, they told us to take provisions and to make a covenant with you, saying, we are to be your servants to help you and serve the Lord. Like, this is a treaty they're trying to make with them. So th- again, they're being deceptive, but their deception is filled with flattery and an understanding of God's word, saying that the enemy deceives with alluring flattery. Again, we think of the Hollywood portrayal of the devil kind of with pitchforks and fire and darkness, and it would be as if it would be incredibly obvious But y'all, our enemy is not that naive. No, he's cunning and crafty. And he uses deceptive flattery to allure us away from the purposes of God. Look what they do next. I find this kind of funny. Look at verses 12 and 13. They say, here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food from the journey on the day we we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So they're basically saying, hey, their elders told them to come and uh, to bring them provisions as a peace offering. And so uh, we brought you this bread. Like, it was good, but now it's kind of dry and crumbly. Like, this bread is like stale, moldy bread. This is just, like, not good. 
And we brought you some wine, but it didn't quite make it. The wineskins, they burst open on the way. And we thought, uh, we brought you some clothes and some sandals. Here they are, but I'm really sorry. They're like really worn out. You know, it's kind of like when a three-year-old maybe gives you a gift like Christmas. Like it's kind of like the nice gesture that matters. It's like, thank you for wrapping up your old baby doll in old clothes for me. Like that's so thoughtful. And it sure does warm your heart seeing their intentions. And so that's kind of what they're going for here to make them believe they truly came from a faraway land. And so the Gibeonites are like, oh, pitiful us. Like we wanted to to bless you, but this is the best we've got. We tried, but our journey was so long. Like here it is. Like will you take our moldy, crusty bread, our empty, broken wineskins and dirty, worn out clothes? I mean, how deceptive. Like they're pulling on their heartstrings like this and they didn't travel from like they didn't travel from faraway lands. No, they probably went into their trash cans and dug some of these things out to bring them to these people. And what did the people of Israel do? Well, look what it says in the first half of verse 14. They they fell for it. It says, "So the men took some of their provisions. They took the bait. Their antennas were up. They were suspicious. They thought something was wrong, but they fell for it." And why? Well, the second half of verse 14 tells us where they went wrong. It says they took some of their provisions, but they did not seek counsel from the Lord. And just to give some context to this, the book of Numbers in Numbers 27, it gives us very clear instructions on what people were to do in circumstances like this during this time. Like they were not really clear on what they should do. They were to go into the priest and they were to seek counsel from the Lord if they weren't sure what to do, but they didn't do this showing us that the enemy deceives by drawing us away from the Lord's counsel. And the people fell for it. They made a decision based on appearance, but what they perceived and saw, and not by the Lord. And this is just a reminder for us to just stop and consider the Lord, to seek the Lord's counsel, to go to God's word and prayer and seek the wisdom of those around us who know the word and love the Lord. And we're not sure what to do. Don't go by what feels right. No, first ask, like, what does the word say? But God's people, they didn't do this. They made a hasty decision without the Lord's counsel. And look what Joshua did in verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So the people of Israel were totally duped. Like they were deceived into cutting a deal with their enemy. They got into a covenant promise, like an agreement with their enemy. A new city, we must see again, this is how our enemy works. Like if he can't come at us through the front door, he will surely try to enter through the side door or the back door. And likely through some sort of subtle deception. And what we can't miss from this is the subtlety of deception for us today. If the enemy can't take God's people out of the mission, he will surely seek to compromise us in the mission. You know, maybe our marriage seems okay, nothing terrible is happening, but the subtle deception is found and our affections show us slowly growing cold towards one another. And rather, just being placed somewhere else and we don't even realize it. Or maybe there's a good friend or someone in our church, nothing major is happening, but yet the subtle creep from the enemy are those lies being whispered into our brains. Maybe thinking, can you believe what they just did? That comment they made, like, I bet they meant something way more than what they said. Yo, I don't know what all the deceptions are in our lives, but I know one thing for sure. The devil is a liar and a deceiver. Like from the very beginning of time, our enemy has been whispering lies. Things like, hey, uh, you're not supposed to have that, but it sure does look good, doesn't it? 
Or, hey, you're not good enough for this. Or, you don't have what it takes. Or, you're not worthy of being pursued. Or, you know what? Your spouse truly is a nuisance at times. Like, they can be a real pain in the neck. Or, you can't really afford that, but you should go buy it anyways. And what the enemy does, as we saw in this story, is take maybe one thing that is true, but then expands it and twists it into a total deceptive lie. For example, no, you may not have someone pursuing you right now in a relationship. But let me tell my brothers and sisters in Christ that yes, you are worthy of being pursued. Because God made you in his image and that although a man or woman may not be pursuing you right now, the God of the universe certainly is and he has called you his child and his beloved and he is just eagerly waiting for you to just come and be with him and to delight in him. Or maybe, yes, your spouse may do things that maybe you don't like. And yes, maybe there are things we can work on, but let's not forget the gift that our marriages are to us and to those around us. And how our marriages point to the gospel that is full and overflowing with grace. Y'all, our marriages show the world what it looks like to be wrong and yet still pursued and loved unconditionally. You know what? Yes, I may eat entirely too fast at times. And y'all, it stresses my wife out every time we share a dish. You know, I'm working on this, I'm getting better. But guess what? Sometimes my love for food just kicks in and she has to remind me that I'm doing it again. And then I need to slow down. And y'all, there are like so many small, just small examples of little things like this that can build up over time. And then the enemy starts to whisper to us, making those little things seem really, really big. Making us lose sight of what is true. And church, this is why it's so important to continually be reminded of what is true, to gather regularly just here on Sundays and in groups and to be in God's word and on our own time and to be feeding ourselves what is true because New City, we combat lies with truth. All year long, we have been praying and believing and trying to encourage one another to spend unhurried time in God's word, to not just rush through God's word, but to let the truth of God's word just to soak into us and saturate our hearts because if we don't fill our minds and saturate ourselves with what is true, our enemy will certainly find a way to fill it with what is not true. Y'all, something will go into our minds and saturate it, and we need to ask, where is it coming from? Is it true or is it not? Because if it's not true and from the Lord... The next thing you know, those little deceptions and whispers of lie from the enemy end up with tragic endings like we see in this story. Look what it says, starting in verse 16. At the end of three days after they made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, uh, Cherephah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders, but all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just the leaders had said of them. So within a few short days, God's people made a covenant promise, like a treaty with their enemy. These people that God made very clear that they were not on their side and they opposed God and that they were were to be totally removed from their midst, all of a sudden they were in a covenant relationship that totally protected their enemy from being harmed in any way. In essence, to say this just a little bit more directly, it's like they made a deal with the devil and they didn't even know it. 
You know, a small little deception and slip-up ended with tragic consequences. Like those little lies and deceptions became a monumental tragedy. Like this is one of those, oh no moments, what have I done? Like, and maybe you've been there. I know I have. Y'all, before I was following the Lord, I was a complete bonehead teenager, doing things I should not have been doing. And because of my not-so-smart decisions, there were several times where I had those, like, oh no, what have I done moments. Like, maybe you've had some of those bonehead moments in your own life. You know, on a smaller scale, uh, maybe I'm the only one, but that same, oh no, what have I done moment happens often to me when I do house projects. Like, I think I've got it right, but I'm going to get it wrong most of the time first, and then I fix it. And it's like, oh no, what have I done? I mean, anybody else there? Well, this happens in big things, everyday life things, and it also happens when we realize maybe we've uh, been deceived by our enemy. Like maybe thinking, why do I keep falling into the same trap over and over again, thinking, why do I keep doing things, or why do I keep believing this same lie? Like, this is that moment when we start to step back and see that we've been deceived in some way, and you realize, oh no, and then your stomach just drops. And at this point in the story, this is where Joshua is, knowing he's been duped and deceived. So look what he does next in verse 22. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying, we are very far from you? When you dwell among us, now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to us, to do to us, do it. So he told them they were cursed for their deception. And their curse was to be made servants. Like they had to do all the hard menial tasks in the house of the Lord, like cutting the wood to keep the flame burning and for the sacrifices and offerings that needed to be made and drawing water for the basin, for the ceremonial cleansings. Like the Gibeonites saw, they said, like whatever you call us to do, we will do it. And they say yes to this covenant promise. And Joshua knew he had been duped, but he also knew he had made a covenant and had to uphold the covenant. And so Joshua keeps his word. So Joshua keeps his word, and the Gibeonites are not left over to destruction. And this is that moment when reality starts to kind of settle in, and they're still trying to figure things out, and they were past their emotional roller coaster, and they were now dealing with the consequences. And God was helping Joshua to learn to live with his mistakes. In New City, unfortunately, yes, our actions have consequences, and we have to face them and deal with them and learn to live with them. And when we put ourselves like in debt, for example, we have to make really hard decisions to get out of it and dig out of it. When we start to create addictive bad habits, we have to deal with the hard part of trying to break a destructive habit. When we have a long history of lies and deceit or just choosing or losing someone's trust, we have to deal with the consequences of the very long, slow process to rebuild that trust. And I just want to point out that Joshua didn't try to hide anything or change anything or fuss. No, he accepted responsibility for his actions. And maybe you're thinking, but wait a second, aren't the Gibeonites at fault? Like, weren't they the deceptive ones? And to that we would say, yes, absolutely. But let's not forget, Joshua didn't seek the Lord's counsel, and he made a hasty decision. And he accepted responsibility for that. But I want to point out 
But what I want to point out is what happened with the Gibeonites for the rest of our time. Because this is the scandalous part. Up to the, because up to the point in this story, we've taught on deceit and how the enemy works. And it's good and right for us to look at this, but it's a little tense. Like it's kind of thick. But as we know about Christianity, yes, the enemy is a liar and deceiver, but New City, we can breathe and release the tension because, y'all, God is far greater than the enemy's deception. Because what we know is that God is playing chess while the enemy is playing checkers. God sees the enemy's moves and then uses them for his purposes, and, y'all, it is so good. And so let's go ahead and read and finish the story with the last two verses. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill him. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. And as we read, read that, I can't help but for us to see that this shows us, number two, the glory of grace. Y'all, this is the thing that makes Christianity different than every other world religion. This is the thing that shows us why Christianity is not just about teaching morals. Yo, yes, there are morals and right and wrong, and we see that, but it is so much more than that. Like at the heart of Christianity that separates it from every other religion is grace. Because get this, the, these Gibeonites, they deceptively deceive God's people, like a truly terrible act, causing God's people to totally be in opposition to what God commanded them, causing them to make a covenant and a treaty with the enemy to keep the enemy safe. And this new covenant that was drawn up took people who were not God's people, who were in opposition to God, and made them at peace with God and God's people, and then bringing them into the house of the Lord, and making them God's servants. I know this is when we scream and shout like, well, that's not fair. Like, how did they get away with this? Like, how did God allow this? And to that New City Church, I can't help for us to see for us today that this is the gospel like, this, this was good news for the Gibeonites back then, and it's, it's the same good news for each of us today. Like, I don't want you to miss this. Y'all, we are the Gibeonites in this story. The Bible tells us that just one of our sins and deceptive acts, just one lie, just one manipulative action, one false, subtle lie, deserves eternal punishment, like we saw last week with Achan. But as we see in our story, we are just like the Gibeonites, we were not God's people. We were deceivers and enemies of God. And in our sin, we make a mockery of God and his design, plan, and ways. But yet, in the loving kindness of God, and not by a covenant made by deception or for anything we've done, but by God knowingly made a new covenant with us and a new promise that then brings us into the house of the Lord, making us his servants. Like the Gibeonites were on a path to destruction, but because of their new covenant created by Joshua, they were brought into a covenant relationship with God and his people. God took the deceptive Gibeonites and made them a part of his plan and purpose. And church, this is nothing but God's scandalous grace. They gained what they absolutely did not deserve. And every day, for each of us who have our faith in Jesus, the exact same thing is true for us. So get this, God took Israel's disobedience to not ask the Lord's wisdom and to be deceived by their enemy to then turn this tragedy into God's triumph, displaying his grace. Because the enemy behind the scenes of this entire chapter is thinking he's going to try to stop God's people through cunning deception by deceptively using God's word against them. And God allows him to do it. And then God took what the enemy meant for evil and turned it for God's good. 
He took a people full of deceit and made those deceivers into people that serve the Lord to then help a greater worship of God. In New City, again, this is what God has done with us. Like in our sin, we're deceivers, but because of the new covenant at the cross, we're put at peace with God and then called his people. We're brought into the Lord's family and house and we're made to serve him. Like we Bring our, we bring our stale, moldy bread, empty wineskins, worn out clothes, just like the Gibeonites did, knowing that it's not our best. But that God looks past our dry and crumbled offering that we bring to him, and through the cross of Jesus, our new covenant, our new promise and commitment, God then brings us into the Lord's house, a sacred space full of God's goodness and glory. Church, this is grace. We do not deserve this. We did not earn this. But because of his steadfast love and kindness and mercy, he allows us to be his servants on his holy ground. I mean, can you imagine those Gibeonites as they live their days just chopping wood and collecting water for God's house, being on holy ground, seeing the Lord's favor and kindness to them day after day? I mean, can you imagine the encouragement it gave them to rest in the Lord, to be revived and refreshed by God, knowing that God sees, the, sees them past their messiness and gives them peace, not because of them, but be simply because of his love. Like, they were supposed to be the ones that experienced complete destruction, but yet because of their new covenant, they experienced his favor. Like, their curse was also their blessing. And I can't help but think of the awe and gratitude and thankfulness they experienced being able to worship God and to see his glory in his house. And I, and I think this resonates with what King David said later in Psalm 8410, where he said, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And the Gibeonites, a people full of deception, saw that and experienced that in its fullness. They didn't just get a day in the Lord's house, but every day serving the Lord. They were in wicked tents, but then because of the new covenant, God brought them into his house. Just let that sit, because that's where we are. Like every day because of Jesus, if we proclaim Jesus as Lord, God sees our deception and sin. And because of his life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God then says, come into my house. Be in my holy presence. Serve me and find peace. Church, we cannot lose sight of how empowering the grace of God is in our life. And it allows us to be at peace. Y'all, we don't deserve another breath, but yet God, because of the gospel, doesn't just give us a breath, but he uses us for his purpose, and he calls us into his house, and he says, do not fear and be at peace. New City, this is the gospel. Like, this is God's scandalous grace. Again, I don't know how you came in today. I don't know what hard circumstances or situations or struggles or discouragement you're facing today, but what we see in our story is that God takes tragic circumstances and hardships and weariness and discouragement and even our sin, and he uses them to teach us and grow us, and then he drowns it all in his mercy and grace. And then he turns what the enemy meant for evil, and he uses it for our good. Like God takes those who are liars and deceivers, he brings them into his house, makes them his servants, and he uses them to fuel his worship. And even still today, God takes liars and deceivers and he makes them truth proclaimers. God takes those who, are, who have destructive habits, he brings them into his love and care, he heals them and changes them, and he sends them back out as those who are helping others to fight adamantly against that same exact habit. 
Y'all, God takes marriages that are rocky and struggling, he heals them, and then he leads them back into the lives of other marriages, and God uses them as instruments of healing and help for other marriages. And how does all this work? Because God drowns it all in his mercy and grace, and he turns a tragic situation into God's glorious triumph. New City, this is what God does. This is the heart of God. It's often our greatest wounds or hardships or struggles or discouragements or some of the greatest tragedies that God redeems and uses for his purposes in his grand redemptive narrative. Like, listen, if, you come, if you've come out of something, if God has redeemed you from something, whatever it may be, no matter how tragic it may be, what if God wants to use your story to multiply God's redemption around the world and around the community? New City, I don't know how God has shaped your story. I don't know what you're in right now, but I do know one thing. Nothing is too far from the hand and reach of God for God to turn tragedy into triumph. And maybe you're here today and all of this is resonating with you, but maybe you're just not a Christian. And I want to make this clear for us today. What makes us Christians is not doing more good than bad. It's not going to church. It's not reading our Bible. It's not praying. It's not celebrating Christmas or Easter. No, nothing we do makes us Christians. The only thing that makes us Christians is putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's joining into a covenant relationship with God, just like the Gibeonites said yes to their covenant that Joshua made. Like we too, we have to say yes to the covenant that Jesus made with us at the cross. Like the Gibeonites, they had to enter into this covenant to be a part of God's people and to be in his house and to have peace. Like if they did not say yes to Joshua's covenant and treaty, they would not have had any protection. And the exact same thing is true for us in Jesus. We have to say yes to following Jesus in order to be in his family. We have to acknowledge the covenant he made for us that was sealed at the cross. We have to trust that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection pays for our sins and brings us peace with God, bringing us into his family. It is faith alone in Jesus that makes us Christians and nothing else. Just like the Gibeonites gave a relieved yes to Joshua, we have to say yes to Jesus. And if you're not sure if you've ever done that, I want you to let today be that day and then just tell someone. And immediately, in an instant, when you say yes to Jesus, the tragic consequences of our sin gains us the triumph that Jesus earned, and we can then enter into God's family and be at peace. And why? It's all because of the glory of grace. And in our time, you know, I can't help but see this story and be drawn to Romans 8.28. For those who love God, all things work together for good. Again, God works all things for his good, even those really, really hard things. And you know what I know? We love that verse, but we also can really struggle with it. Especially when things are hard and we can't see the good. Or when things don't go how we like it to go. And what caught my attention this week about this is just thinking about Joshua every time he went to the house of the Lord. And he saw the Gibeonites. And he was reminded every time he went just of his mistake. I bet wondering most of his life, like, how is this good? Not seeing it. Maybe some days were okay. Some days he was sad. And maybe some days he was thankful for them. Uh, Who knows? We can only speculate. But you know what? It likely wasn't until after his life was over when Jesus came that we can now look back on that and see the full good in it all and displaying God's grace. Again, Genesis 50, 20, what the enemy meant for evil, God used it for his good. In New City, we don't always know when we'll see the full picture, seeing the full triumph. 
seeing all the good, but in the end, we can trust that God turns tragedy into triumph. And why? Just because this is the heart of God. This is what God does. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us. Even in really, really hard situations, even in tragic moments of despair, God, you are good and you're faithful. And God, you love, 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 love to turn tragedy into triumph. You love to make messes your masterpiece and to display your power and worth. So God, we pray today that whoever people are in their walk, they would be reminded of the ongoing faithfulness of God in all things. God, you're good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.